When the magic 120-sided die rolled the number for Northwest Frontier, I was excited. Finally, a war film about Lewis and Clark. People my age growing up in Seattle learned a ton about Lewis and Clark in elementary school, and I still believe the Northwest Passage will be found one day. I was never a good student. Imagine my confusion as the film faded up to reveal the sandy northwest frontier of British India. And while I may have been confused, I wasn't disappointed because while Northwest Frontier is a film that dives into the tensions between colonizer and the colonized, those ideas are contained mostly inside a train car fleeing toward Kalapur. Which means you could, and probably should, title this movie The Train Escape. This film's characters would fit nicely into an Agatha Christie mystery. We've got our young Prince Keishan under the protection of British Army Captain Scott. With them is Mrs. Wyatt, played by the great Lauren Bacall, whose voice you could finish Santa dining room table with. There's Mr. Peters, the arms dealer whose profession makes him loathed by all sides. And British expat Mr. Birdie, who loves an underdog. Throughout the film, we aren't sure what to make of shifty Dutch journalist Peter Van Leyden, which is exactly the opposite of how we feel about Gentle Gupta, our train driver and eternal optimist. It seems like it would be a lot of fun, and it really is, when we're smashing locomotives through walls, fixing broken rails, and fending off rebels. But there are some real dark elements in the mix. We see the aftermath of a massacre which killed hundreds, with a baby it's only survivor, and the suggestion of a child murderer in their midst. By the time the film reaches its climax, you've got a machine gun pointed at our characters by the man we assumed was the rebel in their midst all along. Who can save them now? You wouldn't believe it if I told you. On today's Friendly Fire, you'll have to forgive us for speaking our minds. We happen to believe that's what they're for as we discuss 1959's J. Lee Thompson-directed North West Frontier. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast that's like B Company. They gave it the right name. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. Lol. <laughs> <laughs> I really loved this movie. I didn't I didn't have any expectations going in. And uh, and I was you know, like some of these older movies that say like adventure film on the uh, on the description, I'm worried are not going to be war films, but I feel like this kind of is. It's set amidst a war. It's more of a war film than a lot of the f- films we've watched. There are a lot of escape films, like the subgenre of war film is now often escape, right? And this is one of them. But train escape is an especially fun sub-subgenre to escape films. The vehicle for that escape, pretty neat. Yeah. It's also a lot a Western, I think. Like, it's got all of the trappings of a Western, except for it's set in Pakistan, or what would become Pakistan. You could uh, transfer every single element to the American West, and the film would remain intact, with the exception of there being um, 
an ostensibly European person on the train that ended up actually being an Indian sympathizer. That was one of the knocks on this film is that it was too much like Stagecoach, which was another escape in a conveyance type of movie made around this time. It's sort of like a, it was the towering inferno, except right. in a, on a ship. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> the same. Why did the title change from Flame Over India? Like this, this is a film that changed titles. Well, it's the other way around. It yeah? was it was released in England as Northwest Frontier, and then the American audience or the American distributor felt like it needed a, a racier name for America. That is a hotter name. And isn't it said it? Flame Over India, but but apparently. Neither of those titles really does it for me. No, neither one tells you anything about the movie. I really get Lewis and Clark confusion with Northwest Frontier. Yeah, I, I, I think <laughs> of it. I think of it as a. Are we going to see like a biplane scene in it? it yeah. It it doesn't. It's not evocative. When right. you told me we were watching it, Northwest Frontier, I was like, I forget. I completely forget what this movie is. Yeah. It seems to be a lot about Indian independence. And was released 12 years after Independence, but set in like 1905, so like way before Gandhi or anything like that. And I found myself reading the like Wikipedia article about the Indian independence movement, feeling like this movie made me feel a little, a little dumb and ignorant about, you know, what the timeline of it was and when precisely it all took place. But it feels like the British kind of processing the idea that they were in power in India and now are not in some ways. I was also surprised at like how sophisticated the film was in teaching us a little bit about Muslim v. Hindu conflict at the time. Like that is in the in the conflict triangle of this film. You're right, Ben. There's like the the empire losing a grip on its subjugate. And then there's there's these this religious war breaking out at the same time. I didn't expect a film from 1959 to to have that much going on. Yeah, and then even just within the group on the train, like there's the patriotic, almost jingoistic governor's wife. Yeah, there's the arms merchant that like nobody respects, but is there, uh, you know, arguing for his his side of things. The you know, the journalist who turns out to be secretly a Muslim. It does feel a little murder mystery on that boxcar, you know, yeah, like, totally. like all the characters are so different and like you're you're made to root for or against a couple of them and you know one of them's going to be the backstabber. Which one is it going to be? Who done it? Where they done it? And with which weapon they uh, done it with? It's like Clue almost. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um. The captain is our, like he and the Lauren Bacall character are two, are two main characters, I think. And I think he does kind of conveniently get to, you know, proclaim that he doesn't, he doesn't really have any political opinion. He just does what he's told as a soldier and he's taken responsibility for these people's lives and this little boy's life. And he's going to do everything he can to get them to safety. But he's there as like a, as part of the imperial occupying force. So I wondered how much the 1959 British audience was, you know, still thinking about whether they should have been in India or, what, you know, whether they felt like it was good that the Indians had 
a had had achieved independence at this point or or what? It would it would have been very fresh in everybody's mind, I think. Still, yeah. And all of these, I mean, there are a lot of characters in the movie that are that are kind of relitigating the question of like the white man's burden. What will what would India be like without us? And they're saying that kind of to an audience that that has some evidence of what what it's like. You know, if you what we right. what we forget is that before the partition of Pakistan and India, Muslims and Hindus lived spread across the entire region. I mean, obviously there or maybe not obviously, but there was a concentration of Muslim uh Indians, I guess, living in what's now Pakistan, but there were Muslims living throughout the entire area and Hindus too. So the the partition was an incredibly traumatic uh, experience that resulted in hundreds of thousands of deaths as the Muslim population all basically force marched into what's now Pakistan and the Hindu population force marched out. A terrible rift among a population of people that had more or less lived peacefully with one another for centuries. And this is not very long after, right? And pa- was that partition self-motivated? I'm unfamiliar with how that worked. Like, yeah. I okay. mean, it was it was part of Gandhi's struggle, right? Was that as he worked toward, toward a free India, uh, and you see this in, in a lot of uh, contexts, like this is the Yugoslavian problem, right? That it, as, as um, countries that are ruled by an autocracy move toward freedom, they also move uh, every community within that country also wants its own new independence. And so long simmering rivalries and tribal conflicts kind of come to the fore. And this is a huge division, a religious division. And I'm not saying that the Raj was what kept the peace. Although a lot of pe- a lot of people in this movie do make that case, right? That, that if it weren't for the, because there's, there's actually an argument that happens on the train where the journalist says, "Well, no, I guess it happens at that at that the massacre of the train, where the captain says, you know, we're here to keep the peace,' and the journalist says, "Is this what keeping the peace looks like?" And the and the argument is, and oh, and then the captain replies, "Well, the Muslims were fighting the Hindus a long time before we got here." And that this would have been, I think, in 1959, a debate that was still happening in drawing rooms in England, mm-hmm. right? That's why this movie, I think, probably resonated with people so much, was that it still is happening in drawing rooms. One of the things that felt very much like a Western was that, like, all the combatants are just like a a horde running over a hill on horseback, you know, like like they're almost entirely... You know, a, fa- a faceless threat that uh, that just runs around killing, and it seems totally senseless. You know, like we don't get to know the mind of the uh, the Muslim armies that are making this war. We don't get to know the mind of any Indian in a in a nation of a billion plus people at this time. We only know one Indian by name, and that's the train yeah. driver. And then there are hey, two. The other two soldiers are just like uh, they don't. I don't think they even speak. They never do. There's the older one and the younger one, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and they are just they're just stoic. And I don't even think we ever see the younger one's face all the way. We only see him in profile. We see the older one because we watch him with that Maxim machine gun just mowing people down all day. But yeah. but but no, we only know the one the one Indian who is playing the you know he's playing the holy fool. And then the rest of the conflict, the entire, the entire story, the whole, everything is played out through the, through the white actors 
sort of communicating different viewpoints. You know, that really stands out as a as something from the era that even I think 10 years later film a film would have been would have had more representation. I think right. you could, I think in 59 this is what it looked like if this movie were made in 69 there would have been there would have been Indian actors representing that perspective or Peter Sellers in Indian uh blackface <laughs> that's what my point was going to be was that i was reflexively waiting for the brown face to appear in this film and that moment never came that moment wouldn't come for another 20 years right like they there is casting representation here and while gupta might be a clown i mean he is what is he fourth or fifth build like he has a lot of dialogue in this movie at the time that he made this movie that actor already had an mba yeah a degree in engineering and um i mean he's an extremely famous famous man in india he is a really his character i mean is a great counterbalance to like god when we pull into that train station and it is 200 dead bodies on the ground and on the rails and on the roofs of the train station like it is a bloodbath there in the same movie that has that, there is also Gupta, who is, like, you called him a clown earlier. I don't think he's a clown. No, I said holy fool. I think I really liked him a lot, and I think I think this film is really interesting in its ability to play all sides of, of grief and comedy. Because he's not a Rickles. Yeah. Um, he's not there for, I, at first you think, like, oh, is this the guy that's here for laughs? Yeah. But he's a he's a very complicated um, he's a very complicated character, and you know the role of the holy fool is um, is someone who creates a foolish character so that people underestimate him, mm. and and is someone who you know who has the he is able to bring the wisdom of a child to to dramatic situations. I never knew my way of being had a name like that. Yeah, it does. Uh, well, we 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 often leave holy off of <laughs> uh-huh. off of the front of it, but that's what, it's a silent holy. Okay, when we when we talk about you, thanks. Adam's the holy fool, <laughs> <laughs> but he's a you know he's he's the glue that holds the film together. When he got yeah. shot and was was sick, you know, I was like, please, not Gupta. Don't yeah. we don't, we cannot lose Gupta out of this film. He's the only thing that he's the only person I have any confidence in. He never fears death or anything. I thought for sure the old man. You was, thought the old man was going to fall through the hole in the bridge, or or something like he he seemed like he was the kind of like the the character that was being set up to be the like the really painful death. Like he's just a really sweet guy. He doesn't really have politics. Like he's he's one of the few that doesn't really participate into the breaking apart into factions that happens the second they're all like on the train and catching their breath. And all he all he does is help people. And yeah, like between him and Gupta, I was I was bracing myself for one of them to be the the kind of the person that dies, you know, right before the climax to make everything feel extra, mm-hmm. extra dangerous. Although I I started to realize his role in the film because the uh, toward the end, because the movie is very um, it's very clever in the way and subtle in the way it critiques Britain to the British, right? It's a it's it's made for an audience of of um, people in the UK who who are accustomed to seeing their own foibles, and he's this character that has this, and we we and we hear it referred to directly several times. This 
British kind of like good cheer hopefulness that that ends up sort of representing a kind of it, it makes them ridiculous. But at the same time, it's maybe behind how successful they are. The empire, uh, the whole British colonial project, this movie kind of makes it seem like a lot of it is just because when they're surrounded, the British response is to say like, well, we've had a minor setback. Right. The indomitableness that isn't all like handlebar mustaches and broad shoulders. A lot of it is just like, oh, you've spilled my tea, like simple or, or even a little callow. And the movie's really good at, at, at talking about that. And it's personified in, the, in that character who somehow he comes out. His suit isn't even dirty at the end of this movie. And, and I think the criticism, uh, yeah, it was Peters that Peters, the, the, the Belgian gun runner that made the wry comment that the Lord of war, if you will, the Lord of war that Mr. Uh, that Mr. Breedy, the sort of British, um, like minor functionary, uh, instinctively sided with Van Leiden as soon as he realized he was a Muslim or a, you know, or an ethnic minority. That all of a sudden, the guy that he didn't like, he he liked because that was the British way, the British way to to prefer the underdog in any conflict. And that's a that's a interesting observation in a movie where we're confronting the British as the colonial oppressor. But it's it's we're also seeing the British self image in a in a British film. And this was like a big hit in Europe. It didn't really do much box office in the US from what I read, but this was something that to which the British audience was receptive. It feels like a, a pretty a pretty intense self-criticism for an audience to be receiving. We watched Zulu really early on in this show. And that was five years after this. And Zulu is a similar kind of movie that shows the British um in a, in a colonial enterprise distant enough in the past that, that it feels like kind of a historical event, but they're really inter- interrogating their, their identity. And that movie was a huge hit too. And really, you know, that movie lionizes the, the Zulus in a way and makes the British seem kind of ridiculous, even though they, you know, it, they prevail at the end. Right. The Zulu cause is, is very honorable. And I guess this movie doesn't have to make that as explicit because it's in, because the actual events are in such recent memory. Well, also, it seems like the, the war that is taking place isn't, doesn't really, like it only involves the British because the king uh, asks the British to take his son to safety. They don't, they, they wouldn't have, have intervened necessarily. Is that the, am I understanding that correctly? Like, I don't know the the Raj that deeply, but my sense is that the Hindu part of India had a clo- had closer ties to the British rulers than the Muslims because the Hindu Maharajas were the ones that were the landowners. So, for instance, this was happening in Northwest Pakistan, but the but the king was Hindu. My feeling is that the Muslim population was often being ruled by a, a, like an, a Hindu overclass that had a natural affinity for the British because the way the Raj ruled was they left the native aristocracy 
and then kind of ruled from above from above there was no you know the 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 east india company whatever the british east india company effectively was the government but what they did was just leave people in power and then all they had to do was control the heads of state in that first scene where the prince is given to captain scott to flee the horde that's right. coming to to sack the uh the fort that they're in but I understand that the movie is trying to project a political decision on this moment, but I never felt it. It felt like a desperation of a father trying to make sure that the prince uh, survives the moment. Whether or not Captain Scott is British is, is irrelevant. I mean, are you saying in the description of what's going on here geopolitically that like, that that's not the case, that, that that was a very specific choice to choose someone from the British military to get him out of Dodge? Yeah. Okay. Well, the, the reason Captain Scott was there was he'd been sent on that mission by the, by the British government in Delhi. Like, make sure that this kid survives whatever you do. And we hear that several times from the governor later on. Like, the reason that the, the British are sp- expending so much energy on this is that this kid is is the golden child. You know what a modern war film set in Muslim countries tends to do a little bit better than this is express what would happen if the prince doesn't survive. And I and I was wishing for that the entire time. Like Captain Scott is telling us why the child needs to live and we all can understand the many reasons for that. Maybe first and foremost is that he's a child and he shouldn't be murdered by by Muslim raiders. See, that's your dumb Western sensibility. But, but sure. like, I, I never got the flip side to this. Like, if he dies, what's the oh shit moment? You know, it's a populist uprising. The Muslims are trying to depose their Hindu ruler. And and it's a and that is an it's an aristocracy. Right. So this kid is the last scion of this ruling family. And without him then there's nothing to keep it from being a Muslim plebiscite. That's what's so interesting about Mr. Breedy's position on the whole thing. It's like, is he going to defend the prince if it really came down to it? Whose side is he on if he's on the underdog side? Isn't he on Team Horde? Well, he would. Be, he, he's on Team Horde, except <laughs> that, the, that in each situation, this is the great thing about being the underdog lover that the British are, yeah. in each individual situation, there's a, a he becomes a, the underdog a, in the face of the horde. That's right. There's an yeah. under under underdog, right? And you just keep chasing who is the underest dog, the the power bottom dog, right? And as soon as one dog jumps on, as soon as the low <laughs> dog jumps on top of the high dog, then you now you're supporting the lower dog again, right? The new low dog, like he's get, he's got the gun trained on him. He's a, the biggest fan of himself. Then he kicks right. the gun away. Then he suddenly is the biggest fan of Van Lyden. That's Leiden. right. Then he's against himself because now he has the gun. Mr. Breedy is a really complex character. Listen, the, the, the British Empire was extremely complex. Yeah. That dude is having the most fun in this movie by far. Like like the scenes where he's operating the gun and they're like flinging the 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 flaming torches out of the out of the coal car. <laughs> like... He's just living yeah. his best life. It really feels like in that one scene, he discharges that weapon accidentally. For when sure. he shoots out the train window, <laughs> sure. it does not look like that's intentional. And he even like clowns to camera a little bit. Yeah. Whoops. 
There's that scene, uh, he and uh, Lady Wyndham are sitting across from each other in the train car. And when he's issued the gun, he's just an idiot. He's like waving it all around. And she like very subtly grabs the barrel and moves it away from her head. Well, that was such a weird (laughs) moment because she said to the captain, she was like, can I have one of these guns? Yeah. Clearly as someone who knew how to shoot. Yeah. And everyone, you know, both he and, 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 uh, Breedy were like, ha, 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 ha. Yeah. And he has the gun to Breedy, doesn't know which end to point. But it, that's never referred to again. Like, she never grabs a gun. Yeah. I kind of expected that was a setup for her to grab the gun and be a, like a crack shooter. Yeah. That would have been great if, she, if she'd, like, Ramboed everybody. Just turned out that she's this aristocratic lady that can, that can you know, put a bullet between the eyes of a, of a bird in flight. Is it just because she's an aristocrat? Because... He definitely doesn't have any hesitancy about tossing a rifle to the Lauren Bacall character. Because she has to make a case, right? He's like, are you sure? And she's like, I'm from Arizona, right? She makes that case, whereas I guess he he would have had much more of a uh, presumption that like a middle class British woman or, 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 you know, privileged British woman wouldn't ever touch a gun, even if she did know how to shoot it in a situation like this, right? Hmm. It'd be much more likely that a, aristocratic woman would have held a gun than than just somebody you know normal yeah i saw the favorite <laughs> i know that upper crust british ladies shoot guns welcome back to fireside chat on kmax with me in studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the west coast oliver wong and morgan rhodes go ahead caller Hey, uh, I'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful, but like also helps me discover artists and albums that I've never heard of. Yeah, man. Sounds like you need to listen to Heat Rocks every week. Myself and I'm Morgan Rhodes and my co-host here, Oliver Wong, talk to influential guests about a canonical album that has changed their lives. Guests like Moby, Open Mike Eagle, talking about albums by Prince, Joni Mitchell, and so much more. Yo, what's that show called again? Heat Rocks, deep dives into hot records. Every Thursday on Maximum Fun. Hi, I'm Renee Colbert. I'm Alexis Preston. And we're the hosts of the smash hit podcast, Can I Pet Your Dog? Now, Alexis. Yes. We got big news. Uh Uh-oh. Since last we did a promo, our dogs have become famous. World famous. World, like, stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Second big news. Mm -hmm. The reviews are in. Mm Mm-hmm. Take yourself to Apple Podcasts. You know what you're going to hear? We're happy. It's true. We're a delight. A great distraction from the world. I like that part a lot. So if that's what you guys are looking for, Mm -hmm. you got to check out our show. But what else can they expect? We've got dog tech, dog news, celebrities with their dogs, all dog things. All the dog things. So if that interests you, well, get yourself on over to Maximum Fun every Tuesday. The only flaw in this movie in the... in the sense of it being a war movie, a battle movie you've touched on already, which is the fact that the enemy was never, it never was more than a horde. We never even saw really a clear leader that we could think of as being the sort of Geronimo. And so every time the, every time we were attacked, the train was attacked. It just, I I never felt like they had a chance. We have to take it as given that Muslims are always going to want to kill all of the Hindus and and the movie kind of just like that's kind of the ethos of the movie in a way like when Van Leiden is revealed to be interested in murdering this kid it's like just because he's a muslim like it, it, he, like the the only justification he gives is that 
he's going to kill this one kid to save thousands of lives. And he never like shows his work on how that math right. pencils out. There's something about Herbert Lom's performance as Van Leiden that I wanted to interrogate with you a little bit, which is like, is his reluctance to kill him in the opportunities that he has to do so, does that come from... Uh, bad timing to allow him to get away with it or is he actually feeling some conflict about what he feels he needs to do he says later that he just doesn't want to kill a kid like in when he's crouched behind the maxim gun and they're all having this long exegesis yeah. about all their feelings where it's like you know any any one of you could just step like one foot to the side the maxim gun he, he can't like there's that fun, like, <laughs> later on in the scene, everyone's ducking under the gun because yeah. fucking Van Leiden hasn't figured out he needs to pull it up to lean it down on the tripod. <laughs> it's a pretty weird standoff. <laughs> yeah. But, but it you know, it comes out then, um, and the, the movie is good about referring back to itself and where, where a character in the film will say, well, earlier on, mm-hmm. you did this thing that, and the and the earlier on moment wasn't really spotlighted at the time, so you kind of have to recall it. But there are a few moments that are referred to then uh, that show that Van Leiden had a a conscience, or that he was a, he was moral. He was moved by the people that had been massacred, even though that was in service of his cause. Yeah, and he didn't he didn't want to kill right. a child. I mean, his hesitancy though, I I felt like gave him a lot of opportunity to do this sort of Lon Chaney mugging. He's got, he's got a face that, that looks a little bit like the bad guy. And so he, he does have resting bad guy face. Yeah. So, so each time that he was about to kill the child, we don't see his reluctance. We see him kind of actually like, like having a kind of perverted He's got his hand on the back of the kid's neck and he's like, (laughs) the shot that I wanted to bring up, which is like, instead of getting in on his face, we're ECUing on his hand, for example, like his, his body is telling a story that his face may be incapable of. Yeah. Well, I wish that those, those two scenes had established. I think they were trying to show like, it was trying to be a mystery movie. Like, is he a bad guy? He looks like a bad guy. It is really interesting that the journalist, the impassioned guy that buys ink by the barrel full anti-colonialist is is the one that, that winds up being also the potential child murderer, putting some lead on the side of like, maybe the British are a good force in the world and as far as like the ideology of the movie is concerned. The first half of the movie, he's giving the anti-colonial perspective and it feels very right. it feels very virtuous it almost feels like he's doing it for sport and it wasn't until it came to the point where he had an opportunity to kill the prince that i bought his position well but when he first arrives on the scene in that in that shot in the governor's palace where he kind of barges in yeah and he's and he's dealing with these stuffed shirts and we see him as a character that we recognize from a lot of films, which is the rumpled journalist that doesn't respect authority. That's a pretty, he's a fun character at that point, And we side with him, I think instinctively, at least an American audience would, but then he gets himself on the train by extorting the governor. He says, well, if you don't let me on the train, I'll just go tell every, I'll just go tell, uh, 
all the people in the streets that you have this secret plan. How do you like that? And he's willing to totally risk the whole, he's willing to totally fuck the whole thing as a threat. And that's how he gets on the train. And that's when we realize he's not the guy that has, that is a rumpled mess, but he has a heart of gold. Yeah, there's an arrogance to him that's like Christopher Hitchens a little bit. <laughs> yeah, right. He is a very Christopher Hitchensy person. Wow. Except for he's got he's got strong Muslim faith that is tempting him to kill a child. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In that way, they're very different. But when he does go off on that jag about how women aren't funny, uh, you know, that's very Hitchensy. I felt that thing you're talking about though, Ben, where our only voice that's articulating a, a pretty clear anti-imperialist take then become and also a journalist's take as someone right. who is <clears throat> who has a responsibility to sort of a nonpartisan reportage or a responsibility to be to be a fly in, uh, in the ointment or to you know to deflate the the conservatives that that person ends up being the villain yeah. And no one else takes yeah. on the mantle of those arguments. So all we're left with is he's the villain and by extension so are so is the Muslim side of this argument, so is the anti-imperialist side of this argument, and everybody else is just like rah rah. You throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. I so expected Lauren Bacall's character to take up that mantle at some point but she's only there as a witness really well and as the as an example this is how the the british prefer their americans which is to say like super foxy foxy and fun and like <laughs> independent and spunky but please don't get in the way while we take care of ruling the world lauren bacall kicks ass in this movie without really kicking ass like she is super soft power here i Fully expected her to punch someone in the face. Did you? Well, because she she's trying to be 1905. She couldn't quite be 1959. Lauren Bacall. Tough little thing. To, I mean, the, both women in this movie are are extremely empowered. Yeah. And and big characters in the film. There's no no shrinking violets. She winds up shooting Van Leiden. Yeah, she sa she saves the day, right? The subject under discussion affects me more closely than anybody else in this room. So many of the films we've seen, like where a young soldier does his first kill, you know, his feelings about it are examined and she gets like a, a brief hug or something from the captain. But it's not like uh, it's not looked into at all. Like the idea that she, you know, she's just a, a civilian. She was there like as an educator and suddenly she's been put in a position of having to shoot a man in the belly and... It's just like, okay, like what, like what's the next scene, you know? Captain Moore is a really interesting character for a couple of reasons. He is in, in every battle. And if you just did a kind of rough count of the number of people he shoots and kills in this movie, he would be one of the most legendary figures in the British army, right? Yeah. He probably <laughs> personally kills 700 people in this movie because his gun is always firing and he's, right. and it always finds its mark. And we, we never really look at war movies in that way. It seems like he's just being the heroic guy. But of course, right. every time he fires his gun, we want it to cut to a scene of, of, of someone falling off a horse. And throughout the course of the movie, you're just like, this man is a freaking killing machine. Yeah. But Kenneth Moore himself is kind of a soft guy. 
that's the interesting conflict is like you look at his face and you see his big wet armpits and you're like this guy he's this guy's gonna get us through he's a pretty gentle hero yeah and that really plays out in the way his his blooming romance with lauren bacall is portrayed because we never he never sweeps her off her feet no he doesn't grab her and kiss her it's up to her whether or not they get together. And at the, end of, at the end of this movie, you could totally see her holding out her hand and like, well, nice meeting you yeah. and, and, <laughs> and getting on a train. It's not clear as it would be if this were an American film yeah. that at the end she's going to fall into his arms. Right. It's if they put I, I imagined as the as the credits rolled, I'm like, did they get a house together somewhere? Who right. would I mean like I can I see I pictured him sitting at the at the sink with a with an apron on doing her doing the dishes while she smoked. Yeah. Am I losing much blood? The end of this movie is insane. <laughs> like the the taking of the baby and them all going off together, like the three of them. Oh everybody What is going to happen to them? Everybody's off the train and he's like, Oh, well, we should probably grab the baby. Yeah. Like the, the babies <laughs> they left the baby on the train. Don't forget the baby. <laughs> Let's get the baby and let's find a home for it, he says. Let's find a home for the baby. But that's it, by saying that, is he saying we can make the home for it, you and me, Lauren Bacall? I mean, they call the baby Young India. Let's find a home for Young India. How's that for a synecdoche? I know. <laughs> and they walk up, put the baby under the arm. Like, where are we going to find a home for this? I mean, I, I kind of pictured that that was an afternoon jaunt for them, that they were going to go walk down the street and like, hey. Anybody, uh, anybody want a baby? John, I don't want to get, I don't want to get everybody super pissed off at us again, but mm. we've talked a couple of times about the veiled race war implications of a movie where the hero mows down hundreds of faceless bad guys. Yes, we have. And, and I think that this movie is very much whites against Indians in a, in a very explicit way. Does it make that case to you or? Or, or is there something different about it when it's not a superhero and it's not like stormtroopers with masks? The, the movie is trying to give us, um, it's trying to give some humanity to it in a couple of ways. The, uh, the captain speaks pretty fluent local dialect mm -hmm. and he speaks to the soldiers, at least always in their own language. Um, Gupta and he, Although he could think he could presumably speak um, better to Gupta in his own language, but they prefer to have their conversation in English so that Gupta can do his um, his Yogi Berra isms. Uh -huh. <laughs> Prince Kishan really drags Gupta for his English skills. <laughs> he does. <laughs> uh, what's a, what's incredible about the film is that when the train is in motion, it's going across a landscape where there are n no people. We're. We're going across an, a, a territory that is incredibly populated in the world, one of the den most densely populated places in the world. But we spend hours and hours on this train and don't see a living soul, not even somebody standing out in a field with a rake. And then when we do come into these little railroad stations, there's nobody there. And so we're, we're left to, to imagine that this environment is inhabited or populated only by a a horde of of Muslim revolutionary bandits, right? They're so, yeah. so effectively like cowboys and Indians style thing. The movie presumes that the English audience knows that there's a 
enormous Hindu population of this country that the British characters think they're protecting. And I think the smartest moment of the movie is at the very end when the little boy goes to the captain and says, yeah, thank you for saving my life. Do I have to fight you? And the captain's like, huh? What? No. And he and he, now he's standing with his people, right? He's got all these his his fancy family behind him. And he's like, because the last thing my father said before I di- before he died or before I was taken from him was that one day I would have to fight the British. And that's the it's a great moment. That's the moment that is in the whole movie that we never see mm-hmm. that the British imagine that they're fighting a Muslim enemy. But in fact, they don't realize that everybody wants them out. Right. Yeah. Was it impossible for a film like this made in this time to to sidecar that sense of the paternal sense of a of a colonialist once things go bad in the place that they've colonized? Like, I think it's it's Lady Wyndham that's like, you know, we got to we got to tame the savages out here. It's our responsibility as Brits. But when they can't, when they're unable to, there is never an expression of either either A, we were responsible and we fucked this up, or B, they're not tameable. And in spite of our greatest efforts, this is not a task that we that we or anyone else could do. There's that great conversation between Breedy and Van Laden where Breedy's making that colonial case, uh, again, a short-sighted one or a small one, that he belongs here. This is his home. And all of the locals are his friends. You know, this is the sort of unwoke liberal. What he's saying basically is, I don't have I don't have any particular privilege. Like, I eat at the same market, and all of the local people accept me as one of theirs. And I'm I'm not a colonizer. I belong here. I'm a native to here. And Van Leiden is saying, all of those people that you think are your friends are always conscious of you and of their status and they are nice to you because you they need you and you are not local and birdie or breedy will never accept that and and the thing is he is a, he is a classic liberal he's very woke to all the politics of the of the of the world he's inhabiting he just cannot see himself as part of that issue that was right. a really great description of like the ground level feelings of things but the film never makes the case about the responsibility of this thing geopolitically right right because that don't because it can't it can't because at the ground level you're always going to have each individual person going well you know we gave it our best shot you can't help people unless they want to be helped (laughs) you're not describing me that's like almost everything though i mean like that's sort of like the problem with politics in the world it's like i you know i want to stop climate change and do everything i can to but i live in a city where i have to own a car and you know i it's very uncomfortable to live in my apartment if i don't use air conditioning six months out of the year like and then and then like you start to feel like personal responsibility for climate change every time you like make an arrangement for your own comfort and and it's not that like one single person is doing it it's that the aggregate effect of lots of people doing it is is doing it and it's the it's the challenge of being a woke liberal is that like eventually you just fucking live in the in the world that you live in and like you can't 
you can't take a vow of poverty and you'll, you'll become a less effective actor overall if you just like step out of society and go live in a tent in the woods or whatever <laughs> I, I love this so much i'm hearing i'm hearing the both sidesism of ben harrison just gradually creeping in it's so wonderful <laughs> well that both sides is it's 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 just that like um well well it is in the sense that it's an argument against uh, against an ideology where po- where politics can be reduced to pure viewpoints well and, and to pure personal responsibility too but 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 this is any time i think now when we think about the colonial era um there is no way to there is no way for someone for an educated liberal person to talk about colonialism in any terms other than that it was a pox upon the world right and all subsequent geopolitical problems stem from it rather than from pre-existing conditions like despite all of the evidence in front of him captain scott would never admit to any of that right like he wouldn't he wouldn't acknowledge that the colonial project was having terrible and lasting consequences on india no he wouldn't but but likewise it's it's very difficult at least in contemporary language to look at the problems in this region and not tie everything to the colonial interregnum right and and it's very hard to say like well some of these problems were are just baked into the way as you were saying to the way people are um and so like where does where does a movie like this, because there are people going to see this movie in 1959 who are saying, as soon as we left India, everything went to hell. And there are people watching this movie in 1959 saying everything went to hell because of the stuff we did for the 200 years prior in India. And both viewpoints are are proffered here. Right. The latter one, of course, gets flushed down the toilet when it when the only person making it is the bad guy. But I think that viewpoint still it still resonates in in a slightly edgier movie at the end. You know, as the captain was like, you did good. Gupta would have said, yeah, get out of India. (laughs) (laughs) That's like the green zone version of the end. (laughs) That would have been great. If like our favorite guy had said. You know, also, though, like, fuck get off. Out. I just want to <laughs> I just want to drive trains. Now I got shot. <laughs> yeah, and he does. Gupta Gupta clearly says, I don't want a gun because I recognize the Muslims as Indians first, not as an enemy. You know, Gupta's also saying some pretty subversive things. If you really scrutinize what he's saying, that thing about always wanting a bigger locomotive and being unsatisfied with something that's small and that works. Like, is he not talking about British colonialism with that? He does it over and over. Yeah. And he does it. He has this weird Jar Jar Binks patois. So so he can give us these these little um deep pearls what helps is like his inelegant argument is matched up against scott cat the captain scott character is not a hardline like he doesn't take a hardline political stance at all his mission becomes micro it's save the train right There's there's no politics in that i've got a moment of pedantry for you guys Early steam engines without a water tender could only travel 10 to 15 miles between water stops. So, 
Even though they do pay some lip service to the water issue in this movie, I guess that was unrealistic to this train pedant. It would have been a, bit, a bigger problem, that yeah. That is not far. I wondered about that, actually. I, I know a steam engine uses more steam than... Yeah. I mean, it's like it's one of those things like when we saw them uh, separating the wheat from the chaff in that uh, in that Italian film, and we were talking about how civilization just doesn't seem worth it if that's what you've got to do. <laughs> yeah, trains don't seem worth it if you, if it's ten to fifteen miles before <laughs> you're going to need more water. Seems like a pain in the butt. One of your observations when you walked across Europe was how there was a unit of distance that that was equal to a day distance between towns were often a day's walk right is that how train stations were built in this time like 15 miles between stations because you had to fill up the locomotives with water you had to you had to i mean that's why pony express uh outposts were built there's so so many of these invisible networks in the world that are that when you look at why there if you if you look at them as an overlay and you realize oh this is a this is a web of a certain technology from a certain era it reflects a system yeah yeah because you would have needed to to replenish coal mm-hmm. uh, and eventually if you look at the at the the great locomotives of the steam era they're pulling a giant water tank with them you know what uh tagging on to to using train and train technology as a as an engine for conflict mm-hmm. when the horde comes in and throws torches into the coal. Smart. Yeah. Wow. I didn't, I didn't see that coming. Freaky. That was the first time I'd ever seen that employed as a, as a war strategy. Yeah. You got to get the coal. How do we attack this train from horseback? Yeah. Burn. The, the coal is it, the weakest part. Far, yeah. Right. It's open. The coal is the, is the death star vent. The Achilles coal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the tense moments in this movie are like some of the great tense moments, like walking everybody across the the gap in the bridge and then driving the train across it. I was like alone in my house at 2 p.m. on Monday, like on the edge of my seat, feeling every instant of that tension. Like it was so effective. It's like the just the the production in this movie is really flawless. And there's like a couple of you know, rear projection scenes or whatever, like stuff that you know that they shot in a studio in London. But it's just a super fun movie and it it doesn't bump you out ever in the way that uh, some of these old-timey-er films can. Yeah. Yeah, I also... The the particularly the shots from underneath as they're walking across the rail yeah, and they're like, doing that uh, thing where one person's holding them from behind and the other person's reaching out and I would have been like get off me like you holding me around the waist like yeah. stretched way out is not going to help me if I slip like stop just all you have to do is take two just not look down and take two big steps. Anyway, I'm yelling. I'm yelling at my screen, going like, "That's not how you cross a fucking ra- broken railroad bridge." Most of these yeah. characters are wearing dress shoes, also, and walking on a rail with dress yeah. shoes. Very fraught. Hard-soled shoes. Yikes. Yeah. Oh, it sounds like we're getting close to reviewing the film. So why don't we go ahead and do that? Okay. Northwest Frontier deserves a custom rating system. It's made up of an object that I found in the film that would serve that 
rating system best for me. Ugh. I mean, it's hard to call a baby an object, but oh. I'm going to do that. Oh, baby India. <laughs> that guy treats objects like babies, man. There's a one of the scenes that really cements the Lauren Bacall character into the upper hierarchy of characters in this film is when she's like, fuck you, Captain Scott. I'm getting off the train, even though you're ordering me not to, and I'm going to look for survivors. It is a very brave thing of her to do in a circumstance that she doesn't have much information. All she knows is that they pulled into a station and it's covered with deads. And it is a character-defining moment for her that happens very early on in the movie. And whether or not she finds any survivors, I think it changes how you feel about Wyatt. But that she does changes how every character treats her. In the aftermath, she comes back with this baby and it's the baby that kind of changes the math on the whole thing. It turns her it turns her and everyone else in that boxcar into something other than the other end of a weapon shooting out at the horde at the Hindu horde. Like you can save and take lives if you're in the boxcar now. And I think that is a crucial bit of math to do. Because if it's just a movie about eight characters shooting out of a boxcar into a horde, there's something like weirdly like nihilist about it. And it skews more towards this the sort of scenes and films that that John rails against a bunch, which is, you know, the the shooting of the nameless, faceless, like consequence free killing. Like I think by by making them capable of saving, I think it it rounds off that sharp edge a little bit in how this film feels. And that was a crucial moment for her and for the rest of the film for that reason. So from one to five babies <laughs> will be the rating system <laughs> for this film. Ben, you started in on a few of the great scenes that that walking across the broken piece of bridge was great. The stopping the train outside the tunnel repairing the rails ahead using rails behind and that heavy conversation about like as soon as you take up the rails behind us you're committed because we can't go back into the tunnel and like setting up that moment with the dialogue that it does is so efficient and crisp and there are a lot of set pieces in this film that operate like that like it's tell them what we're going to do, do the thing, and then say what we've already done that are like great parts in this film. And that's one of them. Scott in that scene is incredible. One of the one of the most heroic characters in a friendly fire film is him alone with a wrench in one hand and a gun in the other. And there's fire all around him because they, because like they set the gas fire to cover up the boxcar. And he's like wrenching and shooting until the last possible moment where they can get that locomotive going. Great scene. Great scenes of suspense and action. And that's totally ignoring one of the very first set pieces in the film, which is like the silent escape. Like, let's let's kick this thing into neutral and try to quietly bust out the wall because we're going down this grade. Really fun train science. Train problems and train solutions. Mm. We're all train nerds on this show, <laughs> obviously, and there are a lot of great scenes uh, that really scratch that itch for us. One final thing I wanted to point out is that when you're a filmmaker making a film 
about trains and using trains, it is fun to see the rails be used. And a couple of times in this film, the rails are at our camera platforms. We get some POV stuff where you know they've just put a camera onto another boxcar and we're following behind. Or we're shooting up above at the horde using the rail as a way to do tracking shots. But there is one shot, Ben, and I and I want to know if you noticed this too. That was clearly a helicopter. That was crazy. A it was only fifteen feet above the ground. A three hundred <laughs> yard tracking shot inside a yeah. helicopter that goes perpendicular to the rails was like wow. Yeah, that was, <laughs> uh, there's never another moment in the movie. And yeah, there were several other times when a helicopter could have yeah. been employed. Yeah. Interesting. Like I don't know whether it was budget or or just like saving your shooting your one shot for the climax, but really yeah, nicely great. done. Some good production value here using what you have in this film. I uh, I really like the film a lot. I wish I knew more about India and Pakistan and Muslims and Hindus and the, all of the conflicts in that. And I think in that way, the film doesn't do too much in teaching you about it. It is a murder mystery. It is clue in a boxcar at its very core. And it is not among the great war movies for that reason, because of its reduction. But it was a very enjoyable film, and I'm gonna give it I'm gonna give it 3.9 babies. Wow, okay. What part of the baby are you cutting off to get to that point nine? It's obviously the feet, Ben. <laughs> God. Ten percent of a baby is its feet. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I know. I just spent a long time saying I, how much I liked, but but I think like I just wanted I want a little more of the. You're gonna hobble a baby. I'm gonna hobble a baby okay. for mm. reasons stated. What about you guys? I uh, I think I'm gonna give I'm gonna give it four babies with their feet intact. Oh, that's sweet. I just had a great time watching this movie. As I often call them, whole babies. Entire babies. <laughs> I also feel like I wish I knew more about the Indian independence movement. And I know that it was a movement that spanned like nine decades. So this this is, you know, a part of that story. And it's, a you know, a fictional part of that story. But it's it's set within... The context of that, and uh, and it made me want to learn more, and uh, it uh, definitely made me think a lot about you know contemporary issues that I think we will look back on with the same disdain that we do uh, colonialism. So uh, so yeah, four four whole babies. It's a lot of babies. That is a lot of babies. <clears throat> I'm gonna come in slightly uh, under you guys. It's a fun movie, but it's not too fun, right? It's it's a serious movie, too. It feels like a movie made by our British friends. Um, but there there is a lot that's left unexplored in order to make it clue on a train. I feel like makes it a lesser document of what it's trying to, um, of the story that it's trying to tell. Like in 1905, when this movie was set, it, well, that was the that was the moment. It was a, a, an event called the Partition of Bengal, which is which was a decision by the the colonial uh, viceroy to to you know split uh, Bengal from 
to to split it off and it became a it became a kind of uh like a flashpoint moment that start that because as you said ben indian uh resistance to british rule lasted for for the whole length of british rule there but there were a few important moments that sort of these different powder kegs that sparked uh whole episodes and 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 you know bengal is like over on the other side of India, right? Bangladesh, uh, but also a majority Muslim area called West Pakistan for a long time. All of this is really interesting set in this same moment. And I don't even think a 1959 British audience would have been entirely clear about all of the factors in play. And if there'd been just a little bit more exposition and I don't mean like a voiceover at the front of the movie where the story is being told, but a little bit clearer, maybe if we had had some Hindu allies on the train other than Gupta, if there had been one Indian diplomat, or um, if the little boy had an escort of some kind other than Lauren Bacall that could have articulated the the viewpoint that that we ended up just having a bunch of a bunch of British representatives that also didn't have a ton of politics. We end up with Van Leiden being the most political person, kind of in a way, the only political person. And then we watch his pretty valid viewpoints on the whole events all get um, canceled by the fact that he is inspired to murder a child in order to advance what I think is Muslim independence. Well, Which, cancel culture is just really out of control. I think we can all agree on that. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like Muslim independence in this in this moment in the in 1905 and in 1947 and in 1959, all are like, you know, that's a that is a perspective that can't be reduced down to one child murderer on a train. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, but but just as a war movie. Two, the fact that the enemy is always faceless means that although there are a lot of tense moments crossing the bridge, the, the ones you pointed out uh, where your heart is beating, we're never in doubt about the outcome of, of anything. The only person in this movie that could have possibly died other than the villain of our main cast was the old man who would have been just a, um, a stunt kill. Just to just to make us feel something that the nice guy, the nice, useless guy died and they didn't even give us that. <laughs> uh, and so so I'm going to come in at three babies. It's a it's a fine movie, but it's not essential. It's a popcorn movie. It might be even be a pork chop movie. Wow. Yeah, I could get with that. But it's a three it's baby. A bit, movie. It's a bit of a pork chopper. It's relationship to war is the thing, huh? I, I, it is. It's relationship to war. And also, I feel like if you wanted to use this movie as a jumping off point to understand the situation in India at any point between 1850 and now, this movie doesn't give you enough to even know where to start to research. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I don't think, yeah, probably going to the the British film library is, is a bad first stop if you're trying to learn about that too well but we've seen a lot of movies where we watch a movie with a perspective 
but the but the perspective is is detailed enough or focused enough that it gives you an opportunity to start to try and understand yeah a situation right like uh, just because a movie has a viewpoint or an ideology doesn't necessarily um well it absolutely doesn't negate its value as a conversation starter that's the whole that's one of our fundamental premises yeah right uh, and this one is just too it just it's too much of a cowboys and indians movie even for me to to know like what part of it i wanted to know more about yeah <laughs> do you want to know who ben's guy is yes me too my guy is only on screen for but an instant uh this happens about 10 minutes and 30 seconds into the film they open the the gates to let refugees through uh, people that are running from the the army that is about to storm the the city that, or I guess it's a fortress, right? Where the where the governor is, whatever yeah. it is, the, fortress city. Yeah, this is uh, the sort of the counterpart to the faceless Muslim horde is the faceless horde of Hindu refugees that are trying to get within the walls before the attack starts and. Uh, there's a shot where there's, uh, you know, probably 2,000 extras running past the camera. And the man that is closest to the camera is wearing like a, a yellow turban and a, and a green shirt. So he kind of stands out and he just looks right at the camera like three times as he yeah. runs past. <laughs> I, uh, it, it just made me laugh because I was like, yeah, that guy's probably like, wow, cool camera. <laughs> <laughs> Your eyes find him right away. Yeah. And uh, unfortunate that that was the take that they had to use. I don't know. I don't know yeah. what the what the choice they made there was, but uh, I'd probably I'd probably do the same thing if I was that extra. So he's my guy. Good guy. I love those shots of giant crowd situations where they're getting a ton of local extras. Yeah. I yeah. always look to see the ones that are just staring at the camera or, or yeah. you know, or looking around like, I can't believe I'm here. You know, I'm always the one in the center of that crowd that's like, where's the craft services table? Just not, not realizing that the shot is, is happening. There's always yeah. something that feels a little bit awesome about that in a way that digital effects has, has taken away. Like, it doesn't have to be a horde, but just a large crowd of people looks a way that that a digitized version will never. Yeah, yeah, just like where the camera is relative to them, like it's it's on a raised platform, but it's not like a swooping, you know, it's not a a crane shot or a right. helicopter shot or anything. It's it feels really real. Uh, my guy is the at the very end of the movie. Uh, the little prince has been reunited with, um, you know, with the delegation of very nicely attired, very fancy Hindu brethren. And he kind of, you know, he goes into this group of people. They're all clad in, in, in wonderful silks. There's a very tall man right at the center. And he tells the boy to go back and tell the captain you know, to thank the captain for saving his life. And the boy has that exchange with the captain. And the entire time the boy is um, holding the box, the the magic um, music box that his, that his father gave him. And the boy is talking to the captain, like, thank you for saving my life. And he's holding this music box. And it's like, he's going to give the music box to the captain. 
he's going to give the music box to the captain. That's the, this is the scene. This is the, Mm -hmm. any American movie, he would hand the music box to the captain. And the boy instead says, do I have to fight you? (laughs) And the captain says, no. And the boy says, because my dad said I would have to fight you. And, you know, Lauren Bacall goes, you know, a little bit. And then the boy keeps the music box, turns and goes, oh, and also, you know, goodbye. And also, I'm still keeping, this was a gift from my dad. And I was like, I am the music box. (laughs) The music box is my guy. My guy's in this scene, too. The film is coming to a close. People are saying their goodbyes. You're getting a sense for what's going to happen to them after we leave them. But what's going to happen to Gupta? He's pretty <laughs> fucked up. Gupta's shot a couple of and times. And he's on a stretcher, and the prince is right there. I feel like the prince could do a lot for Gupta's life and his family. And uh, Give Gup- Gupta the nod, you're saying. Gupta saved everyone uh, through his ability to drive that, that steam engine. He's, he's critical to everyone's survival, and he's sort of thrown out at the end. He doesn't get the benefit of a reward in the same way that Captain Scott doesn't. No one's rewarded at the end of this. There's an uneasy kind of truce, and maybe truce might even more be more too strong of a word. Hmm, I don't know. To use here. People just sort of go off in their separate ways. Gupta, though, throughout the film, remained my guy in that way that I really like when you can. You can't always do this. But if you can possibly make fun of someone to their face without them knowing it, I feel like Gupta's doing that a lot to people in this movie. He is. Like, in the way, what was the term that you used for what he is? Holy fool. That holy fool way. I'm, I was not familiar with that term before, but but he lays back in the cut and he's smarter than than other people think he is. And I felt for him when he got injured, like, Ah, not Gupta. Don't die, Gupta. And then they give him that that uh, that funny umbrella uh-huh. to shade himself under. <laughs> like they're clowning him up, but he's never a clown to me. I really dug him. Yeah, so. yeah. he has a he has a lot of dignity, and and uh, it's I think hard for us maybe to uh, when we're first introduced to him, and he's he's playing a very broad character that it's that you don't want to. Th- you don't want him to be a step and fetch it, right? Yeah. You don't want it to be a caricature, right? Or or a Jar Jar Binks, yeah. And then little, pretty quickly, and then throughout the film, he's a real he's a real living guy. You can yeah. imagine him being a being like a dumb dad too. Like you can imagine him dad joking around the house. He's a real he's a very visibly yeah. real person. Yeah, wonderful guy. Yeah, the film does not fall into the temptation of making him absurd right and in, in a way it can't because if yeah. he's absurd then then the, then there's no i mean he's the center of the film you can't way. have the absurd guy driving the locomotive you need that guy to be a professional on some level hmm. and he is right. engine driver yeah i also just want to call this movie out for having maybe the best double take in friendly fire history uh, and that's uh, when Mr. Breedy has uh, had his arm put in a sling and he's uh, sitting down thinking that all of their troubles are over and then has a drink of his whiskey while casually looking out the window and sees the, the horde is back on them. So, he does really spit take that, doesn't he? Um, an amazing moment. 
and uh, <laughs> just an A plus performance on that double take. <laughs> the uh, the way we end these things is always to pick the next movie. Uh, John, do you have the uh, 120 sided die out there? The holy die. <laughs> uh-huh. Here it goes. Ready? Yeah. Twenty-five. Twenty-five. A nineteen sixty-four Fred Zinnemann picture uh, set after the events of the Spanish Civil War. A movie called "Behold a Pale Horse." Hmm. Not. I've not seen this movie. Famous Spanish bandit, played by Gregory Peck. Holy shit! And Omar Sharif. We haven't seen him in a movie since uh, since uh, Top, Top Secret. Sharif, <laughs> right? From his starring from role Secret. in Top Secret, yeah. yeah, that's how I know him. <laughs> yeah, probably, probably the that's, main thing he's known for. It has Anthony but, Quinn too, the great Anthony Quinn. Oh yeah! Wow, wow. looking forward to. I don't, um, I, don't, I don't see a strong female lead here from the list of of famous Hollywood actors, but maybe one will will appear. Can only hope there's a Bacall somewhere. Behold a Pale Horse, like Northwest Frontier, available on Amazon Prime, which is always nice. I feel like a lot of people have that. Watch the movie for free. Gotta love that. Making it easy. All right. Well, that will be next week. We'll leave it with Rob's, 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 Rob's from here. So, for John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Listen to me. Friendly Fire is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted by Benjamin Harrison, Adam Pranica, and John Roderick. It's produced by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our logo art is by Nick Dittmore. Friendly Fire is made possible by the support of our listeners, like you. And you can make sure that the show continues by going to MaximumFun.org slash donate. As an added bonus, you'll receive our monthly Pork Chop episode, as well as all the fantastic bonus content for Maximum Fun. If you'd like to discuss the show online, please use the hashtag FriendlyFire. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR, Adam is at CutForTime, John is at John Roderick, and I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks. We'll see you next week. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.